Hey everyone, and welcome to the Forefront Podcast. We are a community of pioneers exploring and building at the forefront of the Web3 playground. We've dug through the noise and surfaced a signal on the state of the art of tokenized communities in the internet native economy. Enjoy this bi-weekly roundup of the latest and greatest in social tokens, DAOs, and more. Good evening, Forefront fam. This is Alex hosting this time in the sub for Caroline. And as always, when Caroline is out, I have Julia joining us as co-host. Julia, how's it going? Good. I definitely wish I was in Paris right now, though, but (laughs) otherwise doing great. My perpetual theme is just never-ending FOMO. And with all of the conferences going on, especially ETH Paris. As I talk to people, that continuously comes up as one of people's favorites. So yeah, I'm definitely with you and jealous. But the one I'm most excited for coming up in early September is MCON. So for people who joined us for, I think, our very first episode, (laughs) I did a quick recap of MCON, which was my first crypto conference, and going for my round two this year. And it was incredibly run. For people not aware of MCON, it is a DAO-focused conference. And it is co-hosted, if I actually pull it up here, I can do the full host. Medic Cartel is always the OG host here. But Collabland, Coordinate, Cabin are the other major sponsors, as well as Metafactory, FireEyes DAO, Lens Protocol, and Snapshot. So it is very much DAO-focused. The first rounds of invites actually just came through. I just got an email this last week. And while invites to the main event are limited, like every conference out there, the main event is only half the fun, really. The side events or the after events were awesome last year. And I know it's going to be even better this year. It was just so incredibly run. I was blown away, especially just the decentralized nature of it, more so than I would say than any traditional ETH conference. So I'm very much looking forward to that. That's what's holding me over. I definitely feel FOMO for ETH Paris like you, but that's what's holding me over. That's I'm really looking forward to that. That's going to be September 6th through 9th, I believe, out here in Denver. So nice, easy trip for myself. All right, let's get into this. I'm going to kick us off. In the DAO segment, we're going to skip over the social token segment for this week, but we got a few really good juicy DAO segments to talk about. And the first one is covering Otter Space. So I'm not sure if people have heard about Otter Space. It's a relatively recent group out there. I don't even necessarily want to say DAO, but I'll read their first line right off of their Twitter page here is Otter Space's non-transferable badge protocol helps DAOs create better incentive systems, automate permissions, and enable non-financialized governance. So people listening to that who have tuned into the podcast before or have read the piece co-authored by Vitalik on soulbound tokens, that will sound very familiar. And this is definitely a primitive based off of that point. And this isn't something that was created after the piece that was co-authored by Vitalik got released talking about soulbound tokens, but it, they definitely are leveraging that that language moving forward as inspiration for what it is that they're doing. Now that the concept is becoming a little bit more popularized and has a name for it now with soulbound tokens. So they're building a protocol that's more of a primitive to help build on this idea of soulbound tokens. So the whole thing that they're really dealing with, the problem that they're dealing with is right now, DAO representation is equal to the number of governance tokens you have. This is a problem as old as DAOs. Vitalik very early on 
called this out as a problem where your weight and governance should not be directly linked to the number of votes that you can end up buying, right? This is a common problem. We, we all know it's a problem. So we've been thinking about different solutions to this problem. And this idea of soulbound tokens has sparked this conversation of this could help solve this governance problem, this token-weighted uh, governance problem. So what's really cool about this is the parallels that they make to certain things like video games and Boy Scouts. So for me, and I'll just take a step back, I absolutely love how much my just gaming when I was a kid has actually contributed to my understanding of the space because so many people came from gaming and are in this space. And this whole idea of soulbound tokens, as soon as I heard about it, I'm like, I know exactly what you mean. And the parallel that I always think of going back to my RuneScape days was... In for people who have never played RuneScape, this is just going to be like in one ear, out the other. But for those who played RuneScape, I'm hoping they're just absolutely cheering on the other side, was at least in the old school days of RuneScape, the big item in that game was the lava cape or the fire cape. And this was one item in the game that you could not buy. What was really cool about RuneScape is it had a very diverse economy, a player-based economy. And it didn't even have a central exchange for the longest time. So people would just go into these different towns and say, I'm selling this item. And a lot of these items were for that you could purchase. The problem with those items is theoretically, you could go out and just farm the most boring, low skill content for hours and hours and hours on end, build up a bunch of these resources or gold, and then just buy whatever the most expensive item was. So when you had that item, people don't necessarily know if you earned it through a drop or if you just bought it through some other means. The cool thing about this one particular item, the fire cape, was the only way to acquire it was to do this incredibly difficult dungeon or event in the game that was notoriously difficult. And people would die all the time, and this is a very hardcore game where if you die, you lose all your items, so it's very high risk. And if someone had that item, you knew they actually did that event. And not only did the item look really cool, that's why people wanted it, but it also came with a bunch of clout like a reputation that I actually completed this particular event because that was the only way you were able to get it. And this is the way that Soulbound Tokens and an Otter Space with their kind of reputation-based badges, this is the way they're thinking about this problem. The other more traditional example that they give is Boy Scouts, right? So for Boy Scouts, for different skills, as you complete those different skills and get different milestones, you're awarded with different badges and you would pin those badges to your vest and it would just be like this kind of walking around trophy case saying, I did these different skills. I can tie this knot. I can do this particular skill, whatever else. And it's just a cruel of reputation and skills and a proof that you were able actually to do those different things. And this is the whole concept. What instead of it being physical badges, it's on-chain, non-transferable items. So what's really cool about this, what they start to talk about is a bunch of different things. One particular one is the difference between predefined roles, which is more the old school way, versus emergent roles. And what's cool is you can slowly accumulate these different badges that, again, are indications that you actually did certain things and you understand things in a certain way. And the interplay between those different badges can determine what you can do within the DAO. And this is very different from this bottom or this top-down type of way in saying, here is your role, here's your predefined responsibilities, stay within that box, if you're a good boy or girl, we'll promote you in two to three years. That's very archaic, very non-autonomous, right? This opens up a way for us to be more autonomous where if you're doing certain things and you earn certain badges, you can hard code in saying people with these certain badges can have these certain permissions. 
And it becomes a little bit more autonomous where if you actually earn those things, well, then things naturally get unlocked to you based on your accumulation of the different badges. And again, the interplay between those different badges that can say, this person actually qualifies to make these certain decisions within the DAO. We trust them because they did these particular things and it can be proved on chain and they're non-transferable. So people can't actually game the system. Another quote, I believe this is a direct quote from, and I'm pulling from my notes here. They talk about by reducing all contributions to a mere financial value, they become commodities and members are incentivized to maximize reward on a single dimension rather than investing in a community long-term. This is the problem right now with the traditional governance token way we're doing things. If DAO members could accrue reputation and receive recognition, there would be stronger incentives to maintain long-standing and positive relationships with the community they are a part of. Again, this is a problem a lot of us see, right? You have a governance token that is also financialized, can be traded, and people are constantly in this battle between the things that I'm doing for the DAO, I'm earning it back in their one single native token. A lot of times these DAOs only have one particular token and it is both a financialized trading way to pay people and it is an actual governance token. And by paying out in that way, you have your members who are caught in, in this middle ground where they're like, do I sell this off so I can actually pay my bills or do I keep it so I can maintain governance power? That's not a position that we want our core members who are the most equipped to actually make decisions and are invested in the community, invested in the DAO. That's not the position that we want to put them in. So by bringing tokens it brings more autonomy to the DAO by bringing these actual soulbound tokens, these badges. So instead of humans making the decision on whether to grant someone permission for something, now their on-chain reputation through badges automatically grants them access to those different things. This is the primitive that Otter Space is actually building here. So that was a lot in their initial release. They released a second Mirror article talking about and addressing some of the misconceptions with soulbound tokens in general, because there have been these different Twitter posts when immediately people go to worst case, which is great if it means we're going to start to address these problems, but it's bad for the actual adoption of this thing where people are like, this will never work because of the way it currently is, which is a very fixed mindset. So they actually get out ahead of it and address those things and educate. And I, we're posting as always the articles in here, but these are extremely well-written. It is not always in this space where you can rely on someone explaining something in a very first principles way, in a way anyone can really understand despite their background and their level of understanding in the space so far. I found it incredibly digestible. So kudos to the people who actually wrote those and the way that they actually approached educating the community about these different topics. So again, one of the things that they go through is saying, what are these different misconceptions? Why do we feel like they're misconceptions? So number one, non-consensual tying of public information to your account that's impossible to remove. So this is a problem some people brought up where it's, what if, there's actually a Twitter post just going off the top of my head where people are like, I just created this soulbound token called asshole and it's an NFT and you can tie it to anyone who you want, send it to their address. They can't actually remove it unless they pay 32 ETH. And in that token, you can actually explain why that person's an asshole. Okay, you can see easily how that could be abused. And that's a problem. OtterSpace takes two different directions to address this particular problem. So number one on their protocol, tokens can be burned by the holder and they cannot be airdropped. Those two. The first one is, I'll directly quote them. We recently added a mint with permission function to the OtterSpace protocol. 
This ensures that the tokens are never airdropped to accounts, but only minted or claimed by the ultimate holder with permission from the issuer. So that's that first one there. This is really cool. So again, talking about the direction that this is going, the issuer says, I'm issuing this, and then with permission, so this ensures that the tokens are never airdropped to accounts, but only minted by the ultimate holder with permission from the issuer. That's amazing. And I'm actually curious if it is possible for you to be able to do the opposite. Like the badge is sent and the receiver has to actually accept it. Because I can definitely see use cases where out of good faith, the sender wants to actually pay the gas fees to send that over and just wants to give that other person the opportunity to accept that. I think logistically, you would actually have it have to sit somewhere in the middle awaiting approval. And it's in this kind of like purgatory middle ground. I don't know how logistically that would work, but that would be really cool if it could go the opposite way. But there's a a much easier, the second piece here is there's a much easier way to actually burn those different tokens. If someone sends it to you, you don't have to pay an exorbitant fee to actually get it sent out. You can actually burn that immediately. So they're trying to get ahead of these different problems that they foresee with having a non-transferable type of token. The other piece here that they talk about is what about in the cases where someone is changing wallets for security reasons? So just like you would change your passwords over and over, maybe not as frequently as you would for passwords, but you may eventually want to actually change wallets just to say, you know what, my key could have been compromised in some way or partially compromised in some way. So I'm just as a habit every year or whatever, I'm going to actually change my address. What if you now have a total ecosystem built up on these different soulbound tokens and someone can't actually transfer that so they feel locked into that particular uh, particular key and now there's a security risk. Something that they say, and there's not a whole lot of details about it, but they're experimenting with community and social verification. So that might be different from something like a KYC that's more direct in that sense. One other thing that they address here is why create a whole standard here? Why not just take the traditional ERC-721 and then you reduce or you just completely remove the transfer functions of that token? There are implications here where you want dApps to natively recognize these things as separate entities because there could be issues with it recognizing it as an ERC-721, someone trying to actually transfer it, it failing, and that doesn't create a good user experience. So in certain wallets or in galleries or something like that. This is a new standard and will be treated as something new and you can separate that more easily in the different dApps that are going to get built. So that's why it's important from their perspective to actually have an entire new standard rather than just modifying the ERC-721 standard. One potential problem I was thinking through on this, because again, I'm trying to play devil's advocate, not from the standpoint of this will never work, but let's make sure we address these problems before they become an actual problem. It definitely does beg the question, If we move to this model of soulbound tokens being the primary function of governance, of your ability to govern, that begs the question, what becomes of the previously used governance tokens in these different DAOs? I can imagine there are worries with that having downward price potential if you're taking away some of the utility of that token. And that might actually create some some hesitancy from different DAOs might create some FUD for them to move away from the token-based voting, even though they recognize that there are problems with it, because a lot of the value in that token is 
is assumed to be that token actually has utility. And when you take some of that utility away, naturally, the price might go down, whether rightfully so or through manic selling off. So I think that's a question that really needs to be addressed right now is how do you maintain, how do you keep utility of that native token that was originally used for governance and may not be used the way it was intended originally for pure governance and voting power? What is the use of that? How do you make sure that people who have committed so much to these different DAOs still have a financial reward in that native token? How do you protect the price of that token? And better yet, how do you continue to accrue value to that different token when you're taking away this particular utility and sending it over to something like badges, these soulbound tokens that are you going to be more used for governance? So I'll leave that question out in the ether as I wrap up here. Really cool project. I I love seeing primitives like this. They did a really good job on setting the stage, selling the value, and then leaving it up to the community to see, try it out, see what, where you can take these different things. So I've really enjoyed reading their different articles. It seems like a really cool team. So definitely one to keep an eye out for. Yeah, and that's a good segue into another big development in the DAO tooling space that came out this week, Collabland, which introduced an integration with superfluid streams that would enable communities to create ongoing revenue with the tool. So Collabland is a really popular DAO tool. I'm sure many DAO contributors are familiar with them. They allow people to unlock more Web3 utility in Discord servers through enabling wallet connection and other things. And superfluid streams add to that because a stream is basically a continuous flow of money from one wallet to another over time. And there is a constant flow that is set by the user that can run without gas and the asset isn't locked in a smart contract. And they're also sent through wrapped ETH and are not compatible with normal ERC-20 tokens. And what they allow you to do is create a sort of subscription model in a Web3 context. So why would Collabland choose to introduce this integration at this time? And commenting on the goals, one of the original makers of Collabland, James Young, said that by integrating Superfluid, Collabland communities now have the opportunity to, quote, build entirely new real-time monetization models that are only possible in Web3. So essentially, it allows tokenized communities and DAOs to create new streams of revenue more easily. So for example, one of the things that Collabland said you can do with this integration is create token-gated roles more easily, Discord channels where members have to pay for every given time blocks to gain access, and also receive pay- allows communities to receive payment for streaming content through Discord. And these use cases all allow communities to monetize social experiences, which have historically been super hard to take advantage of for tokenized communities, with recurring push payments that are executed over the blockchain. And super Fluid also interestingly argued that this is better for users than Web2 payment methods such as credit cards because it's A, more secure since it's executed with cryptography over the blockchain. And it also, B, doesn't require bulk payments. So there's more flexibility for you to only pay for the level of experience that you want and also easily pause it, almost like a more tailored version of, for example, PayPal subscriptions for Web3 communities. And I think that this is a really cool development because it makes social token-based communities more sustainable, especially when just starting out by allowing them to give more utility to their token without necessarily building a product or pursuing other forms of revenue right off the bat. They can just 
capitalize on just that social aspect more easily. And it also just gives builders more community design tools. One reaction to this that I can think of would be that it leads to over-financialization, especially that part about using bulk payments to pay for specific time blocks to access certain experiences. But this is only like another tool that community designers have now in their toolbox, and it won't necessarily lead to over-financialization unless the community uses it in a way that is not mindful and leads to that kind of experience. So yeah, overall, I think it's a really positive development, and I'm excited to see what the implementations will lead to. I love this for two reasons. I think just piggybacking off of what you said there and wrapping up, it gives these creators another tool in the toolbox and it might give them a better like platform to get started off of. Because I imagine right now, it's just number go up and th- th- you can get this over financialization, especially with social tokens. I addressed this in a previous episode. I'm worried about the over financialization of people. If you have a social token for a particular person, Now, not only do you feel like you have fans, but you also have shareholders in your personal endeavors. And that can be very stressful and hurt you mentally if you say, I can't mess up ever because it's going to hurt the actual price. And not only my fans are going to be disappointed in me, but they naturally have no financial interest in how I behave day to day. That can be a slippery slope. So this gives those particular people with that exact same worry another option to say, I'm going to have more of a traditional style subscription-based model that people are very familiar with, but it's using and it's better and it's using the actual cryptography and the security of that. And you'll access more and more fans as Web3 gets more and more adopted, as people have access to different wallets, more and more people have wallets, they'll be able to pay. This will become more and more intuitive, the use cases for it. Absolutely love this. It's giving creators more arrows in the quiver to get started. So I absolutely love seeing stuff like this. And again, like you said, let's see where the community takes it. They're giving a platform here. People can use it however they want. And we're going to see a lot more creativity from this and the way people are leveraging it. Awesome. So I'm going to go into the final DAO segment that we have right here and talking about Joke DAO. I can't remember. I don't think we ever highlighted Joke DAO in the past, but we might have mentioned it in passing in a previous episode, or at least I've seen it pop up here and there. But... There's a big announcement here most recently here, July 13th. They released on Twitter that officially JokeDAO is launched. And they walked through a thread here and it bounced around a little bit. So it's not necessarily chronological or necessarily logical in the way I might have done it. So I'll try to cover it here and give people an idea of what JokeDAO actually does. Because despite its name, it is not a DAO about jokes. The way I would surmise this is it's more, and this is coming from their Twitter as well, bottom-up on-chain governance. So think of Snapshot where it's more of like core team, they release a proposal, the community gets to vote on it, and depending on that vote, it actually moves through and then it gets executed, right? Grant gets offered, the DAO invests in something particular, whatever else. This is the exact opposite direction. This gives the community a chance to actually propose different contests that they talk about. And so you could have actually the core team, I believe, again, this is a little bit unclear in what they talk about. You could have the core team say, we're going to release a contest here. And I'll go to where he talks about there are three steps to actually getting a contest created here. You mint a voting token. So we'll get back to that. You set up the rules for the submissions and voting. And then you end up airdropping 
the voting token to your community so that it can actually vote on this. And there's actually some very genius ways that they're going about this. That's not just a bottom-up snapshot. They talk about why mint a voting token. Voting tokens need to be compatible with their smart contracts. So they do recommend minting from their site just from that particular aspect. But the added value is it lets your community vote on L2s for cheap if you're not natively on those L2s. And from an anecdotal standpoint, a lot of the DAOs I know are natively on Ethereum. That might be changing over time, but this is a really cool way to actually not only get bottom-up voting, but get a chance to vote on an actual L2, like a polygon, where it's just dirt cheap. And it makes the actual participation way more likely when that gas fee is way lower. Just deploying a voting token on an L2, airdrop it to the community. So right now, they're going to natively get airdropping to communities set up through them. It is very much in beta, very much in beta right now. They recommend using coin buys for now to actually airdrop the token to the community. And they don't exactly give some guidance on how you might divvy up the voting tokens to your community because maybe you want to have a one-to-one match with whoever holds your native governance token in your community and airdrop the equivalent amount of those tokens to them. This is all aside, (laughs) and this is what I'm interested to see how this actually works. As DAOs are recognizing the challenges with having everyone vote on every proposal, people are realizing that not everyone in the community has all the context necessary to make an educated decision on every single decision that the DAO makes. So maybe it's not necessarily scalable for us to vote on every single piece. Where I think this could be very helpful is if the core team is like, you know what, we want to release a certain prompt to the community and they can actually send in different, this is a little bit esoteric. If the core team is like, hey, we have this certain topic, we're trying to make a decision on in this realm or we're trying to gather ideas for what we do next in this different area. The core team could actually set up a contest They could mint that token, they could airdrop it to the community, and they could say, here's the theme, here's the parameters for what we're going to be voting on. And now the bottom-up nature comes in, and the community gets to propose a bunch of these different ideas, and they have this voting mechanism in place where the community can vote on their favorite ones, and depending on where the votes go, it can actually execute similarly to Snapshot where that whatever is voted most highly, those different options, that's the one that kicks in. That's the one that they move forward on. Again, whether it's grants, whether it's investing in certain things, whatever else. So it is a primitive here to create more of this bottom-up approach. And again, DAOs are going to make the decisions on what this is used on because there are going to be certain things that work better for the traditional snapshot. Bottom down, the core team is proposing a certain vote. The community votes on it. Great, it moves forward. But there's going to be other instances where the DAO wants to say, you know what, let's leave it up to the community to make a decision here. Here's the prompt here. Let's let the community generate the ideas. The community generates ideas. The community also votes on their favorite ideas. And then those get pushed forward. And the little things that they're adding in here to make it easier, like the minting your own token just for this particular contest that they call it that you're going to vote on, and then actually airdropping it on an L2 where the fees are cheap, it makes it a lot easier for the community to actually vote and participate, especially if you're natively on Ethereum where gas fees are high right now. And you might be like, you know what? I don't care enough about this to vote on it. Or I do care, but I really just, I can't even afford this 40 or $50 gas fee that's because there's some 10,000 PFP airdrop and it's just going up. And I don't want to pay for that. 
and you might forego governance in that way. Again, I recommend that you read through the tweet announcement. It does bounce around a little bit again, and this is very much in beta. So there are little things in there. If you want to add certain things like JPEGs in there, like you have to add a URL, there's no attachment way. So there's little wonky things like that that they're absolutely going to fix. And they address this, that this is a constant work in progress over the next few months. So keep that in mind as you get to use this thing, but it's a great opportunity to get in early. And from an essence standpoint, if this resonates with you, this kind of bottom-up governance approach, it's giving you an opportunity to get in early and actually make recommendations for changes to JokeDAO and actually push this in a direction that you have a vision for. So that's what's awesome about this in beta. Give it a shot. Again, we're going to put a link to this in the show notes so you can check it out for yourselves. All right, let's move on to the buzzworthy news. So the theme for this week for the news is very much in the NFT space. We got two on Polygon. We got GameStop's ETH NFTs and OpenSea laying off 20% of their employees. Let's start with Polygon. And first of all, kudos to the Polygon biz dev team because they've been absolutely crushing it with different partnerships most recently. Some really big names and not just partnerships, but just potential future partnerships. There's obviously conversations having happening right now with these big name companies. And you could sit back and say, I don't necessarily want to support big name Web2 traditional companies getting into Web3. And it's this kind of facade of Web3. And I'd rather have a native Web3 thing that's built from the ground up. The reality is the stage that we're at right now, we could either treat these Web2 companies as enemies and we're constantly competing against them and we're trying to make things that are better and there's absolutely merit to that. We should absolutely be thinking in that way. But we should not be so hostile. We're like, there's absolutely no value to Web2. We're just going to laugh them off and we're just going to sit down and build ourselves because I've mentioned this before, these Web2 companies have a huge reach. They have the voice of the traditional audience that doesn't know anything about Web3. And people's first foray into Web3 could be through these companies like Reddit, like Disney, like Discord, like gaming companies. So it is super important for us to not only keep an eye on these different things, but help these companies usher in these new people and then be confident that the things that we're building that are more Web3 native are going to be better than these things. And the Web2 companies are this top of funnel, bringing people in, getting them educated. They're very good at talking to that audience, dumbing things down in a way where someone with absolutely no Web3 experience can understand something and the value of something, get them in, get them understanding the basics, and then offering them up this non-skeuomorphic, much better option that's Web3 native, that's being built, and that maybe some of you are way more excited about. It becomes this on-ramp. So in my opinion, we should be paying attention to them, whether we feel like that they're going about things the exact right way, because they are really good at communicating to these audiences who don't know much about Web3 in a way that's accessible, and they're really good at clean UX. So extracting away a lot of the actual Web3-specific jargon and skills necessary to actually participate in a lot of these different and use these different dApps right now. So for me, I feel like this is a good thing. Talking about Reddit releasing the NFT marketplace, Polygon actually going through Disney's accelerator program. You can definitely tell Disney is interested in NFTs. (laughs) And I can definitely see why, because they are the quintessential IP bully in the Web2 world. So it makes complete sense why they're interested in that. But again, Disney has a big reach. We should 
be thinking of in a positive some ways, how can we both win? How can Disney win? How can we win? And to, in my opinion, it's that on-ramp. They have access to that next wave of people that is going to take the actual blockchain and crypto market to mainstream. So let's cover in detail a little bit the Reddit's NFT marketplace launch. So they partnered with Polygon here. And I'll just read right off this article from TechCrunch. Reddit is launching a new NFT-based avatar marketplace today that allows you to purchase blockchain-based profile pictures for a fixed rate. So these are not auctions. Company said you do not need to have a crypto wallet to buy them. So your credit card or debit card should be enough. Reddit has actually created their own native wallet called Vault that lives natively on their platform. But the actual NFTs are minted on Polygon. So there is this instance of custody and it's something that we have to look into in more detail and saying, do you actually have control over your own keys with this vault wallet? Or is it sitting on a Reddit server? <laughs> are these keys sitting on a Reddit server? And then the adage, the old age adage goes, not your keys, not your coins, or in this case, your NFTs. So there's some logistical things to look into here, but it's on Polygon, super low fee, very accessible for new people in here, despite what people might think about the security there. Polygon is absolutely killing it, buying up and getting access to different ZK rollups, optimistic rollups. They have a really, obviously a really good business development team as they partner with these different companies. So it's something to take a look at. From a list price standpoint about these different NFTs, you can expect something similar to, for people aware, maybe different MMOs or different games that are getting released with different packages. So the different tiers of pricing for these NFT avatars are $10, $25, $50, $75, $100. They are actually releasing this to an invite-only small community on Reddit right now that's testing this out. And they have a limited edition access right now, but eventually it's going to be tens of thousands of these different NFTs. So... We've talked about Reddit getting into this space, definitely seeing the value of blockchain. And there was actually a, you had the old Reddit co-founder, I forget his name off the top of my head right now. He was on the Bankless podcast. What was it? Alexis Ohani. I, that that might've been it. He was on the Bankless podcast and he started talking about this and the origins of Reddit, but very much came from a kind of decentralized ethos. And as you've seen, the communities grow and it's been very much organic. Reddit has not interjected a whole lot and not directed a lot of the communities on there. They've been more of a referee, which is pretty much right in line with the ethos here. So it's really cool to see them taking this next step where I feel like Reddit is in a better position to understand the inherent value of Web3 and not just see it as a cash grab. So really cool development here. Again, something that we're going to look out for. And uh, whether you think this is the actual next thing and this is designed perfectly, the thing is it has access to people who could get on-ramped to Web3, understand the merits there, and then advance towards something that's a little bit more Web3 native and non-skeuomorphic that a lot of you are building out there. So it's an on-ramp and it's something we should be paying attention to. And in my opinion, we should be rooting for them. The other piece here is Polygon was chosen out of one out of six companies for a Disney accelerator program. And there was actually, they're the only blockchain a part of the program, but there were two other blockchain related companies here. One is Flickplay, a social media platform for video NFTs, and Lockerverse, an online e commerce platform that has filed NFT related trademarks. And they're, all, they're both going to participate. 
So it's obvious here that Disney is interested in the NFT space. And like I mentioned before, that shouldn't be much of a surprise for anyone that has heard about Disney and the IP wars and their role in lobbying for extending different IP and copyright laws. The, the quintessential one is they've constantly been in danger of losing the trademark of, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know the difference between trademark, copyright, whatever. I'm using these intertrade interchangeably, so bear with me here. But losing access, losing the IP of Mickey Mouse. And you can imagine how detrimental that would be to their business. So they've constantly been lobbying to Congress to extend these laws and saying, oh, copyright is 75 years from inception or from trademark and 80 years and 85 years and 90 years because they don't want to lose that different IP. So they're definitely a bully in that sense. So you can see why from an NFT standpoint, now they're using all of that IP that they're trying to protect right now and creating this other revenue stream for collectibles for tons and tons of IP that they have. They have Star Wars, they have Mickey Mouse, they have all the classics there. They're buying up all of this different IP. And you can imagine the potential revenue stream that they could get out of turning this into digital collectibles. So again, I can see people out there just rolling their eyes and saying this will never work. But again, Disney has access to a lot of people who could get on-ramped into this. And while Disney is, I can almost guarantee, not going to be going a Web3 native route here and doing something really impressive and different, it's probably going to be more of a, this is art or very low utility in these different things. They're not going to be a first mover here, but they're going to be an on-ramp for a lot of these people. So something to pay attention to. So this isn't an official partnership now. What's going to basically happen is they'll have access to different Disney execs who will help them out and give guidance and things like that, which is hilarious that it's going to be the Disney giving Polygon guidance rather than vice versa. But it's clear that Disney is scoping out potential partnerships here. So we'll see what that advances into. Again, on the NFT theme here, GameStop just released their first NFTs. And these are just art-based NFTs. Obviously, they're going to go down the gaming NFT route, but they're just not quite there yet. These are going to be eventually collectibles in-game that you can use in different games. But what's hilarious about this is within 48 hours of actually releasing these different NFTs, they have dwarfed Coinbase's NFTs by, I, I think, more than double here, which is hilarious. <laughs> GameStop, being a big Web2 name, obviously, and pivoting into NFTs like so many others, so many other like kind of legacy names and just keeping the legacy name, but having that IP and then just going into the Web3 route. Since Monday's launch, GameStop NFTs have seen at least over 3,000 ETH in trading volume, which is about 3.5 million with the recent prices in trading volume. And comparison to Coinbase's NFT market, since its lackluster launch, has generated a total of 1,700 ETH, which is roughly 1.8 million. So within two days, the GameStop NFTs have actually dwarfed Coinbase's by almost double here. So really interesting to see that, and I'm really happy to see them do well. The natural comparison here is for OpenSea. So from a volume standpoint, it's nowhere close to OpenSea that's doing about 16 million per day with current prices. But comparatively on the fees, GameStop is taking a 2.25% commission on NFT sales. And that compares to 2.5% of OpenSeas. So it's very competitive. And while OpenSeas definitely going to be more of the art standpoint, and GameStop is moving more towards the game NFT, I don't know if there will be a whole lot of overlap and com competition. And there's NFT marketplaces popping up all over the place. But what GameStop really has ahead of them is 
not only the meme stock, but the name GameStop, which is a nostalgic name for a lot of us. So I love seeing them do well. Again, nice little on-ramp, especially for people uh, who grew up in that generation of buying games from GameStop. Could be a nice on-ramp there. Lastly here, (laughs) out of all these different projects, OpenSea ended up laying off 20% of their employees. So you can imagine a lot of these different projects are salivating right now with this incredible talent coming from OpenSea, which is the OG in the space, and actually bringing that talent in there and making them better. So there could be an impressive butterfly effect here moving forward of swooping up some of that talent, bringing it into these different projects, especially Web2 projects that are trying to get this Web3 perspective and help them direct that in a way that's actually going to be beneficial and not just a rinse repeat of a lot of the failures that we've covered on here of Web2 companies trying to get a foray into Web3. As a quick aside from this, the announcement is from Devin Finzer on Twitter. We'll post it in the show notes. A very well done type of notification to the community on why they're doing the layoffs, what they're doing for their employees to help them out and get new jobs. Like it, It is very well written and justified in here. So a lot of these things can be seen as like the C-level, out-of-touch type of thing, like we're just trying to get to our bottom line, but it is very well written. I actually recommend people look into that. That is it for our news. I'm going to hand it over to Julia, who is is handling a doozy here, this 40-page <laughs> article here, talking about the moral character of cryptography. So I'm looking forward to this breakdown. Julia, take us away. Yeah, so it's actually 48 pages, by the way, but it was a super fun read. Thanks to Scott Moore for resharing this paper on Twitter and bringing it back into the broader Web3 discourse. The Moral Character of Cryptography is essentially a paper written in 2015, so a few years ago, by Philip Rogaway, who's a professor from the Computer Science Department at UC Davis. And he argues that cryptography as a practice is an inherently has an inherently moral and political character that is often ignored by most practitioners. And it has this character in a more direct way because its technological features directly rearrange power. And it was written in an interesting historical context, the aftermath of Edward Snowden's revelations on the mass internet surveillance being conducted by the U.S. intelligence community, and argues that the inability to address this mass surveillance and protect the American public was actually a failure on the part of the field of cryptography itself and called for a more concentrated effort to resist mass surveillance from the cryptography development community. So this has a huge mission. Let's take a deeper look at some of the key takeaways from the research and what it means for the blockchain space today, seven years after the paper's initial publication, because I think a lot of his insights are definitely super relevant to today's discourse. One of the first main takeaways is the relationship between technology and institutional power in addition to capital. So in the very beginning of the paper, Rogway argues that there are two ways that a scientist can behave politically, implicit politics and overt politics. So implicit politics inevitably occur in the course of any scientist or technologist's work because they influence power relations as a result of their technological discoveries. So an extreme example that he documented is the nuclear bomb, which has cre- which created brand new political disciplines and disputes such as nuclear nonproliferation and completely changed the course of not only human history, but also international relations. And this basically helped establish the foundation that whether 
whether a scientist takes overt political action or not, their work is not politically neutral or, quote, just a technological problem like they would want to believe. The second form, overt politics, is when a scientist engages in activism and other forms of public influence directly. So one example of this that was given in the paper was Einstein co-signing a letter against the nuclear development that made the whole field of nuclear nonproliferation a thing after in the aftermath of World War II and helped reshape the discourse in the scientific community. So that was an example of a scientist taking an overt political stand and participating in like d- d- democratic processes in order to advance their field. The key takeaway that I got from this is that nobody who's working on a technological problem can pretend that the technological their problem they're working on is just math or purely like a question of computer science. Any kind of successful technology fundamentally reshapes power relations and becomes political through the process of that reshaping. Much of the rhetoric around the consumer repackaging of cryptography with Web3 aims to address these power relations. So for example, giving the little man finally an opportunity to rise up against big banks and these other institutional players like through Bitcoin and other forms of currency. Addressing this element will be the key to responsible mass adoption. And without having these discussions before we reach that point and actively co-creating the systems that we want, we kind of risk other actors defining those power relations for us. Something that we've already seen to an extent with projects with large amounts of capital, which is one form of that power, such as Bored Apes, already defining the narrative of the entire space in the eyes of mainstream media and those that aren't directly Mm. involved in it. The second main takeaway from this that I got is this interesting point of cryptography for security versus crypto cryptography for privacy and how that's played out in the history of research in the space. So while cryptography for security focuses more on commercial applications for cryptography for privacy has way grander aims to use cryptography as a tool to, quote, precipitate sweeping social reforms. At the time of writing, Ragaway pointed out that crypto for security had done super well because it was able to find commercial adoption through cybersecurity and establishing itself as a discipline within businesses. While crypto for privacy has suffered because of a lack of incentive from funding sources, primarily because a majority of the research in this space was funded by the Department of Defense and other military and intelligence actors who would hesitate to fund research which benefited something counter to their interests and therefore it didn't really have the fuel that it needed to grow. Interestingly, it seems that the development of cryptocurrency and the increasing commercialization and discussion of cryptography as a result in broader culture, crypto for privacy, because much of this, these new projects are seeking to use cryptography as the basis for really radical social changes, has found a possible engine to help it grow and thrive in the current economic system, especially given how much capital is behind cryptocurrency. However, in the process, even though it remains this way rhetorically, in practice, a significant portion of the movement has lost its focus on helping ordinary people or even its focus on privacy as an 
issue of concern in general as a result of refocusing more on those financial aspects. And this is especially interesting given that cryptocurrency and the crypto space as we think of it now, which is divorced a little bit from cryptography, itself grew from the same cypherpunk movement, which helped define cryptography for privacy movement in the first place, with the Bitcoin white paper even originally coming out in the cypherpunk newsletter. So cypherpunks believe that one of the defining questions in the internet age is if electronic surveillance would actually allow corporate interests to suppress liberty or if cryptography adopted on a wide scale would allow individuals to defend themselves, essentially hacking power relations through code. But cryptography still remains a double-edged sword. The math itself doesn't have any agency, but it can easily sway this adversarial relationship within a system with just a few lines of code. Like you mentioned before, Alex, the not your keys, not your coins thing really helps illustrate this relationship Mm. and who actually like has power in these systems. And this all sets up part three of the paper, which to me was the most interesting. And the main reason why we as a space empowered by cryptography need to have a more systems level view of the impact of this technology. Mass surveillance has devastating societal consequences. So he talks a lot about how power doesn't need to be explicit to be powerful. Surveillance itself enabled by the current lack of privacy in current Web2 technologies is an instrument of power. And surveilling entire populations now has only a marginal cost and has been is easier than ever in human history because of the power of this technology. And it's strongly linked to both cyber war and conventional warfare. And he takes a really interesting deep dive into this, such as going over the CIA's Cointelpro program, which helped infiltrate a lot of political dissident movements and undermine them from the inside using surveillance. And he provides it's definitely a way more elegant explanation of this history than I'm doing now. But even the threat of surveillance causes self-policing and compliance. And therefore, Mm -hmm. like a society where mass surveillance is such a societal norm provides little room for personal exploration or even challenging social systems. And in a way, shrouding these adversarial relationships is even more disorienting than if they were made explicit because the extent to which these actors have power Power is not known to the general public. So in a political sense, this leads to suppression of activism and political dissent, something that is still relevant today, for example, in shadow banning activists on Twitter and Instagram through monitoring political content. But in a commercial sense, it also makes access to cryptography and the ability to cut that off at the behest of a few key players who control most of this data, such as Google. It creates this kind of anti-competitive environment that prevents genuine disruption and innovation and real value for internet users like from startups. So yeah, that was a lot. But I think he has a really great section also at the end that I wanted to close off with that kind of addresses this question of we have this context and we understand the severity of this issue of surveillance capitalism, but how can we actually take meaningful steps to address this? And I think two main takeaways that the crypto space is doing an interesting job of exploring is academic freedom and institutional values. So regarding the first point, academic freedom, I think that one interesting new tool or community enabled by cryptocurrency and tokenized communities is DSI, the decentralized 
decentralized science community. Really big issue that was brought up in the paper was how a lot of funding for academic research now, which has conventionally been where many of these technological developments take place, is funded by big government actors, big corporations. And this often takes away from the incentives like of this research. For example, ethical AI research, which implicates big tech companies, could easily be suppressed because those corporations control much of the funding that enables that research to happen in the first place. But with tokenized communities in DSI, they can potentially provide early forms of community-driven, communally funded research, such as protocol labs that are built on open source principles and separate from these funding sources, therefore provide like research incentives that are more aligned to benefiting human flourishing in general. And it also empowers researchers from unconventional backgrounds or who are not involved in academia to contribute to this as well, resulting in a diversity of perspectives. I think one thing that's been really cool is the rise of these research, like almost think tanks like other internet that are helping propel Web3 forward that do really rigorous research separate from the infrastructure in which we would normally consider Mm -hmm. research of that rigor to be done in the past. And the second thing that I wanted to close off on is institutional values. One really key takeaway from Rogaway's paper is that the kinds of institutions that we choose to take money from inevitably influence like the outcomes like from technological developments and the projects that we're building. So for example, in the cryptography space, it's inevitable that researchers who are taking money from the Department of Defense and other similar actors would produce research that to some extent is tied to the military, regardless of whether or not that's something that the researcher truly values. So the values that are imbued in the institutions and systems that we're building now in Web3 will have an an immeasurable impact on the way that the community develops. And it would honestly be cool to see Web3 have a more extensive political imagination, something that's already being pioneered by the Regen movement and new mutual aid DAOs such as PacDAO. Because rather than something to be shied away from, I think one thing this paper makes clear is that politics is a way for us to dream and work towards a better system for ourselves to live under, just as Web3 primitives like NFTs are making the forms of financialization that were kind of previously hidden in Web2 platforms now more explicit. The blockchain through this distribution distributed public ledger is also making those same power relations explicit. But what we choose to do with that information is up to us. There's so much good stuff there. (laughs) Thank you for covering that. I know that is an absolutely beast of an article here, but I actually had saved this in my to read for later because it just looks so interesting. And while this is from 2015, it got recently resurfaced. And I think a lot of people are reading this currently or already read it recently. So I want to go through each one of your different points at a few different comments on this. So talking about the politics and science, I think this is such an important thing to bring up because recently there's been almost this new religion of science now. In a more secular nation, people are now looking to science as this kind of religion. We're saying this, this is, don't get me wrong, this is absolutely not an anti-science type of perspective here, far from it. I think science and the scientific method is one of the absolute best ways for us to approach any kind of problem in the most logical and objective way possible. But at the end of the day, science is conducted by human beings and human beings have biases. Human beings can be bought. There's those implications where the actual science being done 
can be bastardized in that. The oldest saying is, follow the incentives and I'll show you the outcomes. We are very incentivized driven people. And anyone who's in the space right now understands that because when you bring a financialization aspect to this, you can actually direct people's incentives towards things that traditionally did not have very good incentives and therefore didn't have very good effective outcomes. Public goods is a great example. So when we talk about like addressing the elephant in the room here, which is just because it's science doesn't mean it is 100% objective. There are going to be injections of politics here, whether it is from the scientists themselves or the scientists doing a fantastic job and being as objective as humanly possible, releasing what it is that they found, and then people interpreting that in a certain way and the masses consuming the actual results of what the science says from a secondary source that ended up interpreting it and putting a certain colorful spin on it, whether they're trying to do it intentionally or maliciously, or whether it's just because they're a human being and every human being has certain biases. That is a reality that we're dealing with. There is a political aspect to it. So any new technology that comes out, well, now there's going to be a whole wave of people saying, what can we actually do with this? And for the longest time with cryptography, it was done at the security level, like you said. And again, follow the incentives. And the secondary thing here is follow the money because it's not just the incentives of the masses, it's the incentives and how weighted those incentives are going to be based on how much money that they have. And these are governments and these are large entities. That has been why security has been prioritized here. Either big companies with big budgets or governments that are trying to protect themselves from other potential threats internationally. So that's why a lot of that has gone through. And it's only been fairly recently Aside from different cypherpunks that have been trying to look at the privacy aspects and have been largely unrecognized or esoteric, really, it's only recently when you financialize it with Bitcoin and then all the derivatives from that, where privacy has now come back to the forefront and the power dynamic has shifted and given power back to individual people who can now keep their privacy, actually hold their own assets, and the assets aren't controlled by some kind of intermediary there. So you're now shifting this power dynamic out to the different people. The other interesting thing that you said here is there are other large players that are either incumbents or new larger players that are popping up and have the incentives and have that weight, the money, in a centralized way. And they're directing that money towards things that are going to benefit themselves and might be detrimental to the future when it comes to an individual privacy standpoint. So... The other thing I think is super interesting, and I've been calling this out as we have to play the politics game right now in order for this to survive long term. You unfortunately need to play the game in Congress. And Brian Brooks has done an absolutely fantastic job of that. If that name does not ring a bell, please just Google him or throw his name up on YouTube. The first things that will come up are his talks in Congress. And he does an absolutely fantastic job describing the value of Web3 blockchain cryptocurrency in a very easy way to understand that someone in suits up at Congress can actually understand and talking about it in a way that says, this is why it's beneficial for the US, for politicians to actually get involved because it can benefit you. And even though we're tongue in cheek here and crossing our fingers and saying, look, the, <laughs> the kind of undercurrent here is we want to make you obsolete eventually. We want to make all of the people who are paying you and lobbying you obsolete eventually. That's the undercurrent here that really isn't talked about. But in order for us systemically to survive in the short term, you have to play the political game 
so that you can actually get past, you can get regulated in a reasonable amount, in a reasonable way. The space can actually mature and it can co- become an actual competitor to a lot of these incumbents who in the short run are being sold on the short-term value that they can get out of bringing this to fruition. So it's this really weird political game where this technology that in itself, the technology itself has no agenda, but it's the people behind it that have a certain agenda. And you can either help shift that power dynamic back to the individuals, which I feel like a lot of people in this space are trying to do. But if you aren't actively fighting for that, and not only playing the short-term game, but thinking while you're playing the short-term game, how am I keeping the long mind? What's the end goal? What's the vision here? How are we going to make sure that we're not going to lose sight? And we're not just going to recreate this problem that a lot of people are seeing right now is, look, we just recreated 2008 with Three Arrows Capital and all the cascading effects with Voyager and all these other players that just got liquidated and defaulted. We just recreated 2008 and it's just a new packaging. It's a new facade. So how can we take a step back here and say, how can we play this short-term political game so that we can get reasonably regulated, that can bring in all this new money, all these new people who otherwise weren't going to play, and we can still build something that's not just going to recreate the exact same problem we have right now in a totally new packaging, but it's actually going to distribute that power back to individuals, and we can ensure that future, we're building towards that future, while we're appeasing the kind of incumbents that we have to appease in the meantime in order for this thing to not have a systemic risk of not going anywhere. It's this really interesting dynamic. It's Netflix worthy in that you have to play both of those games right now. And Brian Brooks is a fantastic example of a political voice here, a very good political ally for the crypto space and helping us get past that milestone, in my opinion, where now we can be building in a way where we are benefiting those incumbents enough so that we can start building towards an actual way to distribute that power back to individuals. You make those incumbents obsolete and not through force, but rather through, hey, we're building something better and through self-interest and through people's ability to make their own choices, they end up shifting to whatever the new piece is. And can we build something better than the incumbency right now? How can we make sure we're not recreating the exact same problem with a new facade? So that's everything I took from that. Loved this piece. And again, thank you for covering this. There's so much in there. I still recommend people read this. I need to go off and read this and just digest everything that's in here because there's so many important implications here. It's one of those things that if we're not constantly reminding ourselves about where we're going and why we got here in the first place, it is very easy to fall into that pattern of just doing what's familiar. And sooner sooner, rather than later, you look back and you're like, oh shit, we just recreated the exact same thing in a new wrapper. We don't want to go there. So highly recommend everyone read this. So thank you, Julia, for covering that. Yeah. Just echoing the last point that she made, there's this one piece of wisdom that I want to leave off with as well that directly addresses that. He writes, research communities have a general tendency to become inward looking. As a community, we have fostered strong relationships to algorithms and complexity theory, but have done less well attending to privacy research, programming languages, or the law. We will play a larger social role if we up our connections to neighbors. So I think that in Web3 also, this really highlights the need for the systems level view not only in designing new systems and new projects and taking almost an individualistic systems view and that you're only using that lens to analyze one project and how it acts with a very niche ecosystem, but also the way that 
these systems are interacting with existing social systems in order to make sure that we have the most just and equitable outcomes possible. Yeah, such a good note to end on. Again, thank you for covering that. And thank you, everyone, for joining us. I hope that was a nice juicy bombshell to end on here. So much going on in this space. I know it's a bear market and we got a nice little uplift at the time of recording. This could be crashing back down again. Hopefully that gives everyone a nice little boost and reminds people why they're here in the first place. It's not just about the number. I think there's chances that this could fluctuate so much more. Just stay in there, get excited about the reason why we're building here in the first place. I hope this gave you some ammunition to look into and continue to read in this space. So thank you again for joining us this week. We will see you on the next one. Thanks. Hey fam, thanks for listening to the Forefront Podcast. We'd love to hear from you, so please visit us on Twitter at Forefront underscore or on the web at Forefront.market. You can come through our Discord too, anytime, night or day. We'll see you next time.